Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, if you're new, thanks so much for joining us. We're really glad you guys are here this morning. Um, as some of you might know, if you've been with us for a little while, we've been in a series called a Subversive, uh, Subversive Church that's walking through Paul's uh, first letter to the Corinthians, which if you were here last week, uh, you may have heard that it's maybe not actually his first letter to Corinthians, maybe his second, and the second one is his fourth. I don't, I'm still confused about it, but, um, but at least in the, as we're calling it, this is Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, so to get a, a full context of uh, kind of the city of Corinth and uh, what Paul is writing to and speaking into in the day, uh, do yourself a favor and check out the podcast online and listen to the first few sermons that set this series up because Russ and the teaching team do a great job at kind of laying the, um, laying the groundwork for that. Um, but if you, if you haven't been with us and you're here for the first time, uh, has anyone seen the movie The Princess Bride? Okay, so as Inigo Montoya would say, let me explain. No, there's no time. Let me sum up. Uh, so, so, so far, Paul is appealing to the church to, uh, to keep their eyes on Christ and him crucified um, and in many ways is kind of subverting uh, the ways which the Corinthian Christians were uh, kind of interpreting and practicing their faith and living in light of the gospel or, or not in light of the gospel. Um, and at this point in chapters six and seven, Paul is uh, writing back, addressing some specific issues that the Corinthian church is asking him about. There's some stuff that's come up that, um, that they feel like, that they want to know more about. So Paul is um, addressing issues of who the church should be looking to and following as kind of their patron apostle, um, the whole issue of Christians suing each other and dragging each other into court. There's a messy little case of incest with a guy and his mother-in-law. Ooh, it is, it's, it's getting a little messy. So, um, so they're asking Paul, what do, we, what do we do about this stuff? Paul's trying to come alongside them and help out a little bit. And um, he kind of dives in uh, to the tiny little, very simple, easily glossed over topic of sex. Um, so, and kind of a sexual ethic, another lighthearted table chatter. Um, so that's what we get to jump into today. You're welcome. Um, so, uh, so I'm just going to read, I'm going to read most of this passage here in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, and uh, then we will dive in, all right? It's a bit of a chunk, so bear with me. Here we go. Paul says, and it'll be up on the screens behind me. You can, if you've got a Bible or a smartphone, you can pull it up and follow along as well. Um, All right, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, quoting the matter they wrote about. Um, But Paul goes on to say, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. I don't know if I got all that correct. Vice versa, basically. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that you were all as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Uh, Now to the unmarried and the widow, I say... It is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. 
But if they can't control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, and not I, but the Lord. So Paul is saying, um, this is not my opinion, I'm speaking for God here, basically. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else to be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So vice versa there again as well. To the rest, I say this, and this is I, not the Lord speaking. Paul saying, this is my opinion. If any brother has a wife who is, who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now we're going to skip down to verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. So many questions, Paul. Let's just move on. Um, was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Okay. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Skipping down to verse 25 here. Now about virgins, basically, all the single ladies. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. If you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries or a single woman marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in life, and I want to spare you from this. Marriage is hard, basically. <laughs> um, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they did not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they are not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. We'll come back to that later. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might be not acting honorably toward the virgin or the single lady that he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the lady, this man also does the right thing. <laughs> so then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he, do not, he who does not marry her does better. Woof. All right. So what is Paul saying to uh, this body of believers thousands of years ago, much removed from where we are and who we are in our present culture, and what might it all mean? I'm about to tell you. No, I'm just kidding. Frankly, I, I, don't, I'm, I do not pretend to know for sure, but I have a couple ideas after studying and praying and uh, kind of taking a hint from Paul who says, uh, not the Lord, but this is, this is kind of how I think about it. 
I'm going to sort of, I, if it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me, basically. So uh, I, I subject my studied but very humble opinion before you today. But uh, first, I'm going to grab my water bottle. I'm going to pray. <laughs> so uh, join me, please. Lord, every good gift comes from you. We're here because you've uh, perhaps spoken something to us. Perhaps we're curious about you. Perhaps we're frustrated about you or we don't understand you. We don't understand how you work or why you let things happen. We're here because we're choosing joy over despair. Kicking against following the path of least resistance. Uh, open our eyes and ears to what you have to say to us through this passage. Uh, be with me as I try to uh, communicate effectively. Keep our hearts soft and um, help us to throw out the bad and hold on to the good. Uh, we love you so much and we're just so thankful for your grace and all the good gifts you give us through your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So. So Paul uh, starts off with kind of laying out a sexual ethic, and I'm going to kind of jump off where uh, Russ left off last week in chapters 5 and 6, moving into chapter 7 here, um, which seems appropriate for, uh, again, the Corinthian context that these Christians were living in. Uh, Corinth was uh, pretty well known for its wild side. Uh, Leon Morris described the city of Corinth as, uh, he says, this important city is intellectually alert, materially prosperous, and morally corrupt. Doesn't sound too far off from some of our important cities in our country today. Um, but none of our cities have been turned into a euphemism for the sex act yet. Yet. Um, to Corinthianize was a thing. That's how people talked about it. And a Corinthian girl meant exactly what you're thinking it means. And there was a temple to Aphrodite that employed about a thousand of them. So this is kind of the culture that, uh, that Paul's writing into here. Um, so it's no surprise that he um, addresses the, the issue of sex and that, that the church is curious about this and writing about this to him. Um, and also it's not terribly surprising that the church is obviously being influenced, right, by the cultural zeitgeist, by the culture that they're, they're steeped in. But contrary to what we might think, um, especially if we were raised in any sort of uh, church background, for those of us who were, uh, Paul doesn't come in and discourage Corinthian Christians from having sex or its frequency or anything like that. He takes something that's become a cultural liturgy, in this case, in this example, um, sort of casual, boundless sex, and he subverts their idea of it, and he goes a little deeper than that. Uh, and many in the church were actually going to the opposite extreme of the culture as well, uh, where they're advocating no sex at all, even in the context of marriage, abstinence, period. Um, you can almost hear the church preaching uh, what some of us might have grown up in. Sex is dirty, sex is gross. Save it for the one you love the most. Or in this case, just save it. Period. <laughs> don't. Um, but Paul comes in and he says, no, 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 you guys have got it all wrong. Sex is beautiful and sex is good. He, takes, he, he kind of goes the long way around and takes a high view of sex um, and makes it, one, an in, makes it an incredible invention of God himself. 
Um, there was this idea circulating within the Corinthian Christian church that abstinence and celibacy was the holier convention. To not have sex was considered holy. But Paul explains this isn't necessarily true. He starts out by saying it's not good for spouses to deprive each other. And it is good for spouses to fulfill each other's sexual desires and needs. Uh, the Christian faith, despite, I think, getting a bad rap over time, especially over the last century, is that um, the faith is, one, is, a, is a prudish faith. Um, that, uh, but, but Paul comes in and says married people basically don't stop doing it and don't keep it from each other. People who are in committed relationships, and if you can't seem to, if you can't seem to stop from having it or wanting to have it, just find someone to commit to and have it all you want with them. <laughs> so Paul says, sex is good, marriage is good, sex in marriage is best. Um, in order to experience the gift and beauty of sex most fully, Paul is trying to kind of lay down some guidelines and I think maybe temper some of the chaos that's happening in the culture around them, setting up a standard a little bit, refuting the fact that to do whatever one pleases, whenever and with whomever one pleases, uh, maybe isn't true freedom, like we think it might be, like they think it might be, excuse me, <laughs> and produces the most pleasure and fulfillment, as many believed at that time. Um, so we've got the perspective that we might, in our sort of postmodern sensibilities, call, um, let's just call it liberal for the sake of the argument, have sex with whomever, whenever, I have the right to do anything, right? As, as Paul is quoting them in chapter six, which we'll come back to. Sex isn't that big of a deal. But Paul also addresses the perspective at the beginning of the chapter that let's call uber conservative for the sake of the argument, that sex, even within marriage, should be abstained from. Um, it seems that the cultural influence on the Corinthian church is one of either sort of seeping into the church and their... Um, uh, the church is reflecting the culture around them, even in vast extremes, like this guy having a relationship with his mother-in-law and the culture around them is saying, like, you guys are crazy, that's way too far. And there's people on the other side of the ditch on the other side of the road who are saying, no sex, even within marriage. And again, culture's like, you guys are crazy. Um, but uh, so, so, so we have this, this pendulum swinging way too far. But the Christian faith, I don't think, is one of prudery nor is it one of complete and utter hedonism, these two sides of the road, these two extremes. In the way that uh, we've talked about this before, uh, the good news of the gospel is a unique thing because it can't, be, it can't be co-opted by the right or the left. It lives somewhere else entirely. Uh, Madeline Lingle talks about this in, in uh, her book, Walking on Water, and I want, I want to quote a little bit of it because I think it's pertinent here. She says, I would not hide the human body from the children as though it was something to be ashamed of, though neither would I flaunt it. Again, the two sides. Let it be natural and holy. The incarnation was a total affirmation of the dignity of this body. And Paul goes on to emphasize that we are, moreover, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if we abuse or reject or ignore our bodies, we are abusing and rejecting and ignoring this temple. I was both amused and appalled at a, rotunda, at a rotunda in the Prado filled with Greek and Roman statues to see that all the genitals had been removed and covered with some kind of leaf. This prudery is in itself a form of pornography. Whoa, that's a little harsh. But I think this is kind of the imbalance that Paul is, Paul is trying to get at in chapter seven, talking to the church in Corinth, that prudery, 
maybe, in its extreme forms, is as equally dark a pit as pornography, as it also puts inordinate, even worshipful attention on the gift of sex. So historically, I think, especially in the last century, I said, I think we can safely say that Christianity has been kind of characterized, especially by our surrounding culture, as one of prudery, but I don't think God is a prude. I really don't. If God created sex and the appetites surrounding it and the organs and mechanics to make it happen, for that matter, the appetites surrounding anything in life that could have easily been designed as utilitarian, right? Eating, sleeping, procreating, work, rest, all of this stuff, it's hard to believe that God is a prudish God and doesn't want us to enjoy life and get the most pleasure and fun out of it. Uh, in Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, um, there's this one point where uh, there's a senior, it's this fictional account of a senior demon writing to a pupil. And uh, there's one point where I want to uh, quote this here. So when Screwtape, who's this demon, is talking to, is talking about the enemy, he's talking about God. So you got to kind of flip things in your mind, so follow with me here. But uh, Screwtape is writing to his pupil about God and pleasure. He says, he, meaning God, he's a hedonist at heart. He makes no secret of it. In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Screwtape goes on to say, never forget that we're dealing, when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Read God there. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures in which, um, which our enemy produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. God made the pleasures. And when we talk about them in their most natural and uh, uh, their most natural and satisfying and truly pleasurable forms, we're soundly on God's turf. God is no prude. And like everything about the gospel, like we mentioned before, I think Paul is trying to, trying to scratch at a truth that can't be co-opted by either side of this, um, this tension within the, the Corinthian church. When we talk about the gospel, we're kind of talking about something altogether different. So to wrap up this section, I think Paul is saying a couple things. One, um, I'm, I'm borrowing a couple points from Russ from last week. Sex is a big deal, especially coming out of chapter six where, where Paul talks about taking care of our bodies and advocates not for the misuse of the gift of sex and not to miss out on its intended truest pleasure to bond two people in a committed relationship and one of the main purpose, one of the other main purposes to have children and grow families, which we don't have time to get into today, but that's something that our culture has almost completely divorced and jettisoned, it seems like, um, but is also important and fundamental. But Paul and, and the faith are affirming of pleasure and they're affirming of our physical bodies. Um, Paul is also uh, talking about or talking about this to the church because a lot of the church was adopting this sort of Greek philosophical dualism of the day which split up the, the spirit and the body and they put the spirit way above the body and the body wasn't as important so it, it doesn't matter as much what you do with your body as it does how you take care of your spirit so there was, that's why there was all this stuff happening prostitution in the temples and all these things and Paul is trying to get, get the body back up in line with the spirit and say no, 
No, no, no. In the, in the old way, Israel built physical temples for God to dwell in. You are now the temple that God dwells in. You are the house for the Holy Spirit. Take care of it. Don't lose out on that. All right, number two, uh, sex isn't that big of a deal. <laughs> Uh, the Corinthians were making way too much of sex by reinforcing the abstinence from it as a holy and better stance even within the context of marriage, okay? Um, and lastly, I, I think Paul is coming to something altogether different between these two extremes. He's saying sex is good. Married folks, go for it. Committed people, go for it. Sex is also powerful though. Respect it enough to not engage in it with whomever and um, whenever one feels like it. If God is a good father, I think he wants to experience the most pleasure and the most fulfillment in life. Like Screwtape said, he's a hedonist at heart um, and wants to, us to participate in the pleasures in the most healthy and fruitful ways for us as human beings. And Paul's trying to put a little framework around that basically and not just do whatever our natural instincts lead us to do. All right, so let's, uh, we're gonna go back to chapter six just a little bit um, because Paul quotes something there that I think is pertinent here. Um, we talked a little bit about normative gaze last week and kind of this paragon for ultimate truth or freedom um, that our culture looks to and says, that's the truth, that looks and feels like freedom. And for, for that time, um, I'm gonna kind of hold this phrase up as like the normative philosophical gaze of the culture. And the phrase is, I have the right to do anything, to which Paul says, absolutely, you have that right. But just because you can, should you? Sure, you have the right to do anything, but before you do, remember, as he says, at the end of chapter six, he says, consider that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and that Christ dwells there. So though everything is permissible, maybe not everything is the most healthy. Like Russ said, eating McDonald's every week. Sure, you have the right to do that. You can do that. Maybe not the best idea if anyone's seen Supersize Me. It gets a little, gets a little dark. It gets a little grim. So in a culture that says, I have the right to do anything, and holds up that statement as the, the paragon of ultimate freedom, the philosophical normative gaze, I'm sinking. Um, Paul says, uh, you say I have the right to do anything, and then he comes back with this phrase, but I will not be mastered by anything which is kind of an interesting response. So Paul turns this statement of apparent ultimate freedom, he kind of flips it into this mantra of enslavement. He said, but I don't, I don't want to become a slave to anything. Paul's rebuttal to the normative gaze of culture is submission, I think, which is a really unpopular word and idea today, but go with me here. Paul's advice for freedom that he gives to, to folks in committed relationships, he says, give yourself to one another as if your bodies don't even belong to each other. That's some radical submission. Um, Paul's advice for freedom to, to unmarried folks is to either stay as you are and submit yourself to God or get married and submit yourself to God and each other. Marriage is great, he said. It's no, it's no sin if you want that and, and want to pursue that. Marriage is wonderful but he doesn't hold it up as, as sort of the normative gaze of the church, and that's a whole other, that's a whole other issue. But he's kind of laissez-faire about it, it seems. He's like, he certainly doesn't push marriage, but he's like, get married, don't get married. It's not a sin. It's fine, don't worry about it. And again, marriage, marriage isn't even the point, I don't think. 
Paul is talking about submission and to submit ourselves, whether in the context of marriage or in the context of um, not being married and submitting ourselves to God. It's the same subversive gospel narrative all over again. It, it, this cycle of kind of um, submission and rise, this death and resurrection, it keeps coming back in different forms. Uh, which is one of the things that makes marriage, I think, such a powerful metaphor used in scripture. Uh, I had a mentor tell me uh, before I got married to my wife, Steph, he said, marriage is waking up every morning and dying. Why I didn't run then, I'll never know. <laughs> it's, it's extreme, but it's true in a sense and oddly liberating. And that's the whole paradox that this whole idea of submission leading to freedom, that, um, that to die, you, you find yourself, even, even sexually, to, to submit yourself is to pursue your own desires, kind of, at the, at the end of it, to, to pursue fulfillment within that relationship, to please another one is pleased. Um, so Paul's recipe for freedom is to to submit, to give, to be generous, all of these outward things, which is the opposite of sin, curvatas, right? To be curved inward, to be bending inward towards ourselves, to get smaller and more compact and more drawn in until we become invisible. Um, uh, Paul's recipe is, is curving outward. It's going outward toward the other. It's being generous, it's giving, it's submitting. Um, I heard uh, this amazing interview recently with poet Christian Wyman um, from the podcast On Being, which he, he says, I think that one of the ways that we know that our spiritual inclinations are valid is that they lead us out of ourselves. You lose yourself to find yourself. Like Jesus said, the greatest among you must become the least. It's this cycle. You place yourself within the boundaries of marriage and sexual monogamy and faithfulness to learn what true freedom and sexual satisfaction really is. That is, to learn not to be a slave to our own desires, but to seek the desires and needs of another, and in that, our own are fulfilled. So, uh, again, uh, piggybacking on last week a little bit, um, I think uh, a big part of what Paul is saying really supports this idea of uh, sex is a big deal, sex isn't that big of a deal at the same time uh, because it's about, uh, it's about something else. When we, talk about, when we talk about the gospel or when we talk about um, sex and marriage, we're certainly talking about those things because that's real life and that's where real life meets real life and things happen. But, but we're, we're kind of talking about something else entirely. I want to read... Um, verse 29 in, uh, of, of chapter 7 here in the message translation because I think it, it uh, points to a few things a little differently here. So Paul says in verses 20, verse 29, I do want to point out, friends, that time is of the essence. There's no time to waste. So don't complicate your lives unnecessarily. Keep it simple. In marriage, grief, joy, whatever, even in ordinary things, your daily routines of shopping and so on, Deal as sparingly as possible with the things the world thrusts on you. This world, as you see it, is on its way out. So Paul is admonishing the Corinthian Christians here, um, in the context of marriage especially, but also in happiness and grief and material acquisition and all that kind of regular mundane stuff of life. 
he, he calls them to live in a different headspace with the idea that, that nothing is, uh, everything is temporary, that this world is on its way out, that things are passing away all around us. I think what Paul is talking about um, is transcendence in a way. Uh, which Webster simply, simply defines as existence or experience beyond the normal level. Okay, I'm not talking about having our, always having our heads in the clouds in some fairy airy way. Um, I think you could just easily call it living by the Spirit, basically, or being filled with the Holy Spirit. That to aim to live transcendently in this, in this headspace that Paul is calling the church to is to exhibit and exude things like love and joy and peace, and kindness, and patience, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. That to live a transcendent life has nothing to do with controlling our surroundings, but with releasing control, because that's outward. It's about releasing control, like so much of what the gospel teaches us. Some of the best, I went to school uh, and I studied theater, and the best audition advice I think I ever got was everything that's in your control, own it 100%. Being on time, being prepared, choosing the right pieces, what you wear, how you present yourself. Everything outside of your control, which is way more than you can control, let it all go. Everything you can control, own it 100%. And everything you can't, you got to just let it go because there's nothing you can do about it. You want to lead? Become the servant. You want to have someone? You have to give yourself to them. You want to have genuine community? Pursue relationships and community and then community will find you. You want to see what the kingdom of God looks like? Spend time with a child or the homeless or the elderly or the mentally challenged? And you'll see it. Or as Stanley Harawas puts it in his book, yes, I'm quoting Harawas, puts it in his book, The Peaceable Kingdom. You're welcome, Russ. Discipleship, he says, discipleship is quite simply extended training in being dispossessed. To become followers of Jesus means that we must, like him, be dispossessed of all that we think gives us power over our own lives and the lives of others. I'd like read that five times when I first went over that because it's so rich. To become followers of Jesus means that we must, like him, become dispossessed of all that we think gives us power over our own lives and the lives of others. We are not our own. Which is, I think, exactly what Paul's getting at here. To the married people, you're not your own. You're God's. And he loves you. And you're your spouses. And hopefully they love you too. (laughs) And to everyone, no matter what your relationship status is, you're not your own. You bear the image of the one who made you. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow. What a gift. And what a responsibility. All right, so Nigga Montoya, let me sum up. Some truths gathered from what Paul says here. I think he says, sex is great, so don't stop having it. But it's also powerful, so it's most, and it's most fulfilling and beautiful when experienced within parameters to get the best results, kind of. Uh, 
God is no prude. And Christianity is not a faith of morality mongering or something. It's God is a hedonist at heart. And like a good father, he wants his kids to get the most enjoyment and pleasure out of life, even in the most seemingly utilitarian activities. Which is one of the reasons we have brunch every Sunday. <laughs> uh, in way, um, the ways in which, the next point, the ways in which we get the most abundance out of life are not always the ways that come the most naturally to us. And our, cultural's normative, our culture's normative gaze, it might not always lead to freedom, like we think it might, or like it convinces us it might, but it might ultimately leave, lead us to enslavement. And this is why we need counsel like what Paul is talking about here and throughout scripture, as well as the wisdom and discernment of our community in which the spirit dwells to subvert our own instincts when they often miss the mark. I think Paul's saying that true transcendence, or you could substitute freedom or life in the spirit, is accomplished through submission and through giving away and looking outward and being dispossessed. And true religion reflects the natural motion of expanding outward toward the other. If the gospel is true, guys, the proof is in the pudding. It's got to be practical. It should work in real life where the rubber hits the road. And we experience the power of the gospel through the releasing of control and the becoming dispossessed. Because I think that's fertile soil for transcendence as we've defined it. Um, I want to invite the band up at this time. Uh, Can we all just close our eyes together for a minute? Just quiet our hearts together. Like Paul says in chapter 7, life is short. We have two choices when we hear that voice of Jesus saying those two words, follow me. We can drop what we're doing and follow, or we can continue doing what we're doing, continue in our own way. But just know, family, that um, all too often I think faith follows action. It's not until we take that step that we feel faith follow. We don't get it first. So let me leave you this morning with a few things that I'm really excited about in reflecting on this stuff today. One is that this is a faith that we're talking about. This is a faith whose leader was the exact opposite of everything the human instinct anticipated at the time. And it still is. And in our kind of confused and disoriented stupor over that, what will we do when we hear that voice saying, follow me? And what does that look like in light of today's reading in chapter 7 and what Paul's talking to the church about? To get the most pleasure out of the abundant life, we have to come to the experience of life according to the gospel with, with openness and submission and teachability knowing that the one who made the pleasures wants us to experience them in their most potent and beautiful forms. And more good news? I'm not alone in that. You're not alone in that. 
We do this as a community. None of us are an island trying to figure this out all by ourselves, trying to read the Bible and figure out what it means by ourselves. The greatest, one of the greatest gifts we have is the body of Christ, which Jesus says is you. It's all of us together. We can't do it alone. It wasn't designed that way. Christ comes alive in the communion of the saints. So let's discern together. Let's listen to the spirit together. Let's fall and make mistakes and mess up together. And let's pick each other back up again afterwards and step out and let's follow together and make some bold choices and watch Christ come alive among us. Do we want abundant life? Do we want to pursue what Paul's talking about, living, living in that headspace, living by the Spirit, having these things that overflow from our lives, love, joy, peace, patience? I think the invitation stands. I think it's right in front of us. It's not far away. Jesus was always saying, the kingdom of God is near. It's right in front of your face. All you have to do is reach out and take it. We have this choice when the voice says, follow me. The spirit beckons, you guys. He's at the door, knocking away. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift of your body, of the church, of a community that we get to discern what your will is and what you say about us, that you love us and you like us, I think. <laughs> that we're your favorite. That you're a good father. Thanks for the word today and the things that we gleaned from reading your scripture and the things we can learn from this ancient text that was written to a church thousands of years ago. What a, what a mystery. I don't get it, but it's pretty cool. Thank you for who you are and all your good gifts, for your grace, for your boundless grace. It says no matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been, none of that matters. What matters is us here right now. Follow me. Let me show you. God, help us to let our guard down long enough to say yes. To release control. And wherever you are today, however you, whatever you think about Jesus or this whole Christianity thing, this whole spiritual journey, this faith walk, all the ways we talk about it. What's that, what's that one step that you can release control in your life and find out what freedom means? That freedom isn't having all our ducks in a row and holding everything so tightly but we experience oh, this deep breath by opening our hands and releasing control. Father, help us. We can't do this alone. We know that you are the start of all this work and you are at the end of all of it too. We're in your hands. We love you. Thank you again for all your incredible, beautiful gifts. We are truly blessed. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.